if you're visiting us today, you're coming into the middle of what's going to be quite a long series, walking with Jesus through, or sort of what with Matthew, um, checking out Jesus in the first gospel that we have in the New Testament. Uh, it's been awesome so far. We've seen just such depth to the character and person of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, that he's actually fulfilling this old story, this the story of the Israelites, the hopes, the promises that were made to God, and now they're coming all together in Jesus Christ. Uh, and we saw last week, we saw that you know Jesus arrives on the scene, he gets into the area of Galilee, there's kind of a couple hundred thousand people in the area, 200 cities, and he begins preaching this message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a pretty bold proclamation. He's coming out as this nobody from nowhere, saying God's kingdom, the promise that you've been all looking for, the day when God will bring everything back into right rule and order. You know, what we would kind of think of as like the second coming of Christ, heaven, for the Jews, they didn't know about that yet. And so he's basically saying God's kingdom is going to rule and reign. Repent, which means change your attitude, move from following yourself to following God again, and believe the good news. And so Jesus goes about in this Galilean area calling people to follow him. He goes to these fishermen and says, come and follow me. And immediately they drop their whole occupation, which in that time and that place, actually to be a fisherman in Galilee wasn't a bad job. Um, you, you could be pretty wealthy because you were right on the, the Sea of Galilee there. You had an opportunity for quite a lot of wealth, but they left it all behind and they start following Jesus. And then Jesus troops around each one of these towns and he kind of does the same thing. We're told in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 4, that wherever he goes, he teaches in their synagogues. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, and he heals every disease and affliction. He goes from town to town to town. And we heard in the prophecy about Jesus last week that these towns were living in darkness, and then a light has dawned. And that light is Jesus Christ himself. He comes, and people who are paralyzed start walking. People who are oppressed by demons, they are afflicted and tormented, have their demons cast out. People that are blind begin to see. People that have skin infections and diseases begin to be healed. And people who are trapped in lust and vice and anger and bitterness and jealousy and rage start to see the light and the way out of their sinful practices. And as a result, we learn in verse 25 that Jesus' fame starts to spread throughout this whole region, even to the north, up to Syria, all the way down to the south of Israel and beyond. He's getting really famous. You know, he's, he's a walking vaccine, so to speak. You know, if, he, you know, if someone you know, figures out the vaccine to coronavirus, they're going to be on the front page of every single newspaper. Well, Jesus was a walking vaccine for that time. He was healing wherever he went. So we learn that the crowds are coming to him, thousands upon thousands of people, and this is where we get to. We get to this incredible moment where with the thousands of people around him, what does Jesus do? Well, he sits down, as we're going to see, and begins to teach. And Jesus delivers probably what's a multi-hour-long sermon. We get sort of like the sermon jam version of it, 10 to 15 minutes. Matthew just gives us the summary of what was likely a very long sermon. And this teaching from Jesus is incredibly well known. You probably have heard various parts of it. And we're going to spend some time over the next you know, number of weeks slowing down through the greatest sermon ever 
preach. But when we understand where it fits in the context, it helps us to understand what this sermon is all about. It's not vague, philosophical, ethical instruction about, you know, just a manual for the good life. Jesus is coming to explain to his people what it means for you to live in the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in? What does it look like? What are you meant to do? And what's the results if you join? So the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like a manifesto for the kingdom. You know, two years ago or so when we you know, first went from having no church plant team to, you know, November 28, we gathered with about 20 people in a room back up in our old church in Hornsby. And I kind of gave a manifesto for, hey, come with me, we'll plant a church in Paramount. Here's the expectations, here's what's going to happen, here's how good it's going to be, here's how bad it's going to be, you know, all that type of stuff. So that people had an understanding of what it would be like to join in before they did that's kind of like what the Sermon on the Mount is like. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the loftiest and hardest teaching, I think, almost, that he gives in his entire ministry. John Stott says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. The followers of Jesus are to be different different from both the nominal church and the secular world, different from both the religious and the irreligious. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God. A fully human life, indeed, that lived out under the divine rule. So you've got the scene. Thousands of people, comes to the hillside, he begins to teach. He outlines what it means to be in the kingdom. And as John Scott says, the kingdom of heaven is a counter. Culture. It runs up against our natural inclinations, our natural philosophies, our natural expectations, even our natural wants. But in it, true life is given. So let's read the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read the, bit, the kind of the introduction to the manifesto, chapter five, verses one through twelve. Seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who 
hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. In the end of that John Stock quote, he talks about living the good life. And really, that is the search that all humans, no matter their culture, creed, where they live, we're all searching for our own little version of the good life. Or in sort of modern parlance, hashtag, you know, blessed which is the title of my sermon. I couldn't get away from it. It has to be hashtag blessed. Because we're all looking for the, that kind of life where you can look back and just go, I am blessed. And there's all different answers to that question of how do you define or how do you pursue, how do you achieve the good life. And our world has you know, skewed the ideas of what the good life really is. I mean, if you look at hashtag blessed Instagram feed, you'll just get crazy things like, you know, everyone from working out to, you know, explicitly sexual content to drugs to family to marriage to, you know, um, getting a new career advancement. There's no consensus as to what constitutes the blessed life. And whether or not we're willing to admit it, I think pretty much all of us, the driving force that kind of throws us forward in our day-to-day and our week-to-week is we're seeking that blessed life. We want that comfort. We want that peace. I mean, at least I do. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. We want rest. We want comfort. We want satisfaction. You know, it was my birthday yesterday. I turned 30, which was awesome. Finally sort of, you know, reaching my life stage. You know, we got three kids and did that in my 20s, and so I kind of like, but I was looking back at my life and thinking, man, I am so hashtag blessed, you know, especially yesterday, we had all these people come and hang out, and you eat all this amazing food, and people put together and bought me this epic gravity-feeding, charcoal-smoking barbecue, so I can create ribs and brisket and all these amazing foods, and it's easy to kind of encapsulate all the best bits and think, that's what blessed is. <coughs> But in the beginning of Jesus' remarkable Sermon on the Mount, he outlines how to achieve the blessed life. But because the kingdom of heaven is a counter-culture to the kingdom of man, the blessed life is going to be counter to all that is in our culture, our natural instincts, our natural expectations, and our natural reward system. It goes against, even as Christians, what we actually want a blessed life to look like. Because the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is outlining here to his followers before they really know who he is, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is inviting us to join into, 
through following him, repenting of our sins, is an upside-down kingdom, where the way up is down. The way to strength is weakness. The way to glory is shame. The way to life is death. And the way to blessing, the way to have a blessed life, but we're going to see in this message how we actually achieve that. So how do we experience and live a blessed life? The truly good life. Both now and forevermore. We've got two points today to unpack that question. How do we enter into this blessed life? Two simple points to try and tie these eight Beatitudes together. Point number one. Hashtag blessed are those who humble themselves before God. Point number two, hashtag blessed, are those who boldly live for God. So what is this blessed life? Do you want it? Are you searching for it? Let's listen in to the master teacher and see what he has to say. Point number one, blessed are those who humble themselves before God really is going to encapsulate the first four Beatitudes. To kind of understand the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, it goes a number of different chapters, but right at the beginning, Jesus is giving this introduction of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And he outlines eight Beatitudes from verses 3 to 12, and kind of those, that persecuted one kind of all comes together as one single Beatitude. And you'll notice in the text that if you look at verse 3 where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, that theirs is the kingdom of God. In verse 10, blessed um, are you and you are persecuted falsely on my account, uh, or for righteousness sake rather, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They kind of act like brackets to show that this is one unit. And then in between, there's all, so their blessings for now, theirs is the kingdom. And then all the Beatitudes in the middle, all the blessings in the middle are actually promises that will only partially be fulfilled now, but they'll be fulfilled in the future. Like it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we have at the top and tail, there's is the kingdom, that's the now of the kingdom. And then in the middle, you have they shall be, that's the not yet of the kingdom of heaven. Which is a great, you know, countercultural way to think about the blessed life anyway. Because the blessed life isn't all here, it's not YOLO, it's actually, you know, YOLT. You, know, you only live twice, and you get so many blessings down, and you get the rest of them at the end. And so. Jesus begins with this eightfold, you know, manifesto of what it means to be blessed. So what does that word mean? You know, you've probably heard the Sermon Mount a lot of times. You've probably read those Beatitudes a lot of times. What does that word mean when Jesus says, blessed is the one, blessed is the man who? I think Kent Hughes helpfully defines it. There's lots of different ways you can try and grab hold of the Greek word makarios, but here's, I think, probably the best. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. Blessedness indicates the smile of God, or as Max Licardo has beautifully put it, the applause of heaven. We often think of blessings as these material things, these benefits, but actually, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, you are approved by God. 
you have God's smile on your life. God looks down and sees those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourn, those, and they find the fruit. Not that we are earning it by our actions, but we are receiving it because of what God is doing in us to make those or make us those type of people. In fact, one commentator, and this guy's like beastly smart academic party friend, and his his commentary's like that big. But he says he reckons the best translation, or the second best translation actually, of that word is Australian. And he, he reckons the best translation is good on ya. <laughs> so if Jesus was Aussie, the Sermon on the Mount would have said, Good on those who are poor in spirit, like on ya, on ya, Sonia, you're poor in spirit, well done. That's what it would have sounded like. And it's this idea of commendation or approval rather than material blessing. So we're going to kind of clear that up before we jump in. So what does it look like to be blessed? Well, let's look at those first four because they kind of all tie together and show us that we're blessed if we are humble before Almighty God. Let's read verse 3. This is the entryway. Blessed, approved, on you are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You read that really quickly and pass by it. If you slow down long enough and realize what is going on in that sentence, it's a truly remarkable and amazing reality. John Stott says this, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. Indeed, our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Jesus is saying, if you recognize that fundamentally you have nothing to offer God, nothing to prove yourself to Him, nothing to gain, you know, God has nothing to gain by having you on His team, if you realize that when you look within, you're a sinner through and through, and you repent of your sins, which is what Jesus is the summary of His whole message, repent and believe, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. You will get, you know, the VIP pass around your neck. You can get into backstage pass. You're in the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And this is where following Jesus begins, and this is the ground of our salvation, recognizing that we are poor in spirit. We have no riches of our good deeds to offer God. We, we can't tally up how many times we helped people or were kind or even enjoyed God in a week and offer it to them. The starting point, as Jesus says, is to be poor in spirit. It's like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee boasts before God. He thanks God. He says, I thank God that I'm not like other men. He's thanking God. He's giving glory to God. But his reference point is like, look how amazing my righteousness is. But the tax collector beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a story that Jesus tells later. And this is how he interprets it. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted kingdom of heaven is a counterculture. The way up is down. The way in is not through riches, but through poverty. If you mourn over your sins, or if you, you know, recognize your sinner, friends, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
in context, it's most likely that this is following on from being poverty in spirit. You now start to not just recognize you're a sinner, but you start to mourn the fact that you're a sinner. You're not just willing to admit, I make mistakes. You're actually willing to weep over your mistakes before God. You're willing to recognize, not only have I sinned as an action, but I hate those actions too. And when you hate your sin, you find the approval, you find the smile of heaven on your side. The old Anglican prayer book in the original version by Thomas Cramner uses this word, this kind of phrasing to express what it feels like to mourn over sin. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Are you someone that is not just willing to admit you're a sinner? Do you mourn over your sin? I find it so hard sometimes. I don't want to even admit before God that I'm a sinner, let alone slow down enough to hate my sin, to feel the pangs of remorse and guilt and shame, right shame, good shame, in that sense of, I'm filthy before him. But when we do, when we are moved by the Spirit to mourn over our sin, we will have comfort. That's what Jesus rewards those who mourn over their sin. We shall be comforted. Because one day we will stand before God the Father and all those sins will be counted as naught, placed on Jesus Christ, and we will be set, well, we are set free, but we will have that experience, that future experience, where we know certainly that our sins do not count against us. And we will receive eternal comfort in that moment. Jesus now goes to the next level, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, that they shall inherit the earth. Sort of seems like, where, how does this fit in? You've got poverty of spirit, then you start to mourn your sin. Now that the meekness is where, when you recognize you're a sinner, you hate the fact you're a sinner, it actually changes how you view other people. That's what meekness is. Martin Lloyd Jones, I think, explains it really well. He says, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. To be meek is to recognize, I don't have anything to bring to the table. Like, you shouldn't be looking to me. You shouldn't be thinking I'm great. You, you really should see me as a horrible person because look at my list of sins before Almighty God. Look at that list. That list stands there. That's me. That's who I really am. And yet, you show me so much kindness. You show me so much grace. And so you start to operate in such a way that, you know, you're humble. You're meek. You're not putting yourself forward. You're not boastful, prideful, arrogant. You're aware of who you really are. The, the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches used to say it like this. People would ask him, how are you? And he would say, I'm better than I deserve. And... and you know, that was a way of expressing meekness in that sense. Like, any blessing I have is way better than I deserve. And what's the result of those who truly view themselves in that way and operate in that way? You're approved by God, that's the major blessing. But you shall inherit the earth. <laughs> okay, pretty cool, right? 
You know, you, you could inherit even a, I'd love to inherit a piece of property. That would be awesome. Um, that would be fantastic. You know, then we'd have to work so hard and save up my money and, you know, have self-control, all those things I do not have. If I could just inherit a property, that would be awesome. But Jesus here is saying, if you humble yourself and lose all that the world has to offer you by following Almighty God, one day you will be included in the great inheritance of the Son of God, and you will inherit the earth. There'll be a day when Jesus returns and brings together the whole, all the kingdoms of the world. The kings will cast their crowns before his feet, and the keys of the kingdom, in a sense, will be given to his loyal subjects. <laughs> you and I. <laughs> and we will inherit the earth. It's not a vague promise. This is, this is a certainty. We will rule the land with God forever in eternal paradise. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then finally, so you've got poverty of spirit, you start to mourn your sin, then you start to change how you actually act towards others, and then you come to the fourth one under this humble yourself before God. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to go beyond just hating sin, to go beyond realizing you're a sinner. It's then to go, I desperately want to change. I want to be righteous. That word righteous has kind of two real major meanings. To be right before God in terms of purity, but also to make right things happen in the world. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is not just to have inward moral purity, it's to bring justice and peace to the land. So when we recognize all these things about ourselves, we start to hit that bottom of the U, and then we come back up and we start thinking, all right, now that I'm changed, how can I change and bring that out into the world that I live in? And John Stott says this, There is perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite. It is not enough to mourn over past sin. We must also long a hunger for future righteousness. You know what I sensed in myself as I was meeting with a brother this week that I probably had lost that hunger for righteousness. This desire to actually not just be who I am for the next 30, 40 years, but to be a completely different man by the end of that time. To change radically to be I don't want to do it because it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of pain. But if we seek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, with even half the effort that we thirst for comfort and pleasure and security and approval, we will be satisfied. So, how do we experience true blessing? Hashtag blessed. You know, if you're Instagram feeding your life, not many of us are going to be like, poor in spirit, hashtag blessed. Yeah. <laughs> Morning over my sin, hashtag, obviously it wouldn't work because it would be a contradiction. But this is Jesus' definition. This is the counter-cultural kingdom, the upside down. You want to be blessed? Re recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. You want to be blessed? Mourn over your sin. You want to be blessed? Treat yourself with utter humility before God and man. You want to be blessed? Hunger and thirst for righteousness you will have God's approval and you will be satisfied. This is the starting point of the Christian faith. 
Blessed are those who humble themselves before God. That's kind of the first half, the first point of Jesus' sermon. That's how you be blessed. Point number two. There's a lot there. I feel like that's enough to chew on. I could just stop, but anyway. Otherwise, we'll never finish the book. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> blessed are those who live holy for God. That's W-H, holy, holy, whole of life, holy. Point number two, blessed are those who live holy for God, verses 7 through 10. And maybe I'll spend a little bit less time here. The second half of these Beatitudes now focus on how we practically live out our kingdom attitudes, the expectations of the kingdom in the real world, even more focused on other people is this section section. The blessed man or woman of the kingdom does not go off into a monastery or into a desert or into like some kind of hut in the wilderness and just have this hunger and thirst of righteousness on your own. The blessed man or woman goes out into the real world with real people. Look at the blessed man, Jesus Christ himself. What is he doing? He's going from town to town to town with real people living out before God. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You can only experience and be like that when you're with other people. To be merciful is to treat people with sympathy and compassion. To be merciful is predicated upon you being a recipient of mercy, you being able to sympathize and pity their state. When someone sins against you, you, you can have mercy on them because you can see that it's coming from their brokenness. It's coming from their lack of you know, the fullness of God. It's coming from the lack of the hashtag blessing in their life. That's why they're hurting. That's why there's all this ruin and misery in the world because people aren't coming from being full of the spirit. They're being coming, you know, from being full of the flesh. And so like Jesus, approve to those who are merciful to those who are inside the church and outside the church. Mercy is God's very own heart. You know, when he describes himself to Moses, when he's given the Ten Commandments, he describes himself as a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you are a merciful follower of Jesus. When you're driving, <laughs> there's laughs there. <laughs> when you're parenting, how's your mercy? When you're teaching at school or Busting the baddies out in the police force or <laughs> working with inept people in your job or whatever it is. Are you a merciful person? Has the kingdom broken into how you treat people? For those who show mercy will receive mercy. You cannot be an unmerciful Christian. That's what Jesus is saying here. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those who get in, those who are in the kingdom, are merciful people. And on that last day, you will receive mercy from Almighty God. Next, number 8, or verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The idea here is living a life of total integrity. Jesus is really drawing on Psalm 24 here, which is this great psalm that says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's who go up to the temple. Who shall stand in his holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who do, does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. To have a pure heart is to have a life of integrity. Who you are on your knees is who you are at the workplace, is who you are with your kids. It's There's one life. The pure in heart are the type of people that are not embarrassed for someone to drop in on them, from, someone from church to drop in on them at work. Because <laughs> they're not going to see a different person, they're going to see the same person. The pure heart is living itself out. Or it's the type of person who's not going to be embarrassed for someone at work to see them at church. You know, at work you can pretend to be this type of person, and then you have church, oh, praise the Lord, but at work you're a different person. And if someone from work was to come in, they'd be like, I had no idea you loved God. <laughs> There's this integrity in life. That's what it is to have a pure and those who are affected by God, who are full of the Holy Spirit, will experience this increasingly. Like, this isn't immediate. I do not have a, a totally integral life. You know, we all are growing from one degree of glory to the next. So don't despair. But seek it. For the reward is this. In integrity, in wholeness, and in purity, you shall see God. If there is a complete divide between who you are in different spheres of life. It's likely that you're not a Christian. It's likely that you're not under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. You haven't truly repented and you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because you will not see God if you are only a Christian here on a Sunday and not following Him the rest of your life. Jesus demands complete allegiance and obedience to His call. So if you're not yet follower of Jesus, and you're not yet fully committed and devoted to following him. Not perfect, but you're following in every aspect of your life. I encourage you, come to Jesus and lay your entire self before him. Hold nothing back. And then you will see God face to face in eternity. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, Jesus is looking at our external way that we live out as being a citizen of heaven. Christians are called not just to be peaceful people, but to make peace. Following the Son of God who came to make peace between us and God, to reconcile us to himself, we now go out to bring reconciliation to the world in various ways and means. Making peace is not appeasement. Appeasement is when you just say sorry so that the argument goes away, so that the problem goes away, or you just bury it deep down and you have this bitter kind of section of your heart that you can't touch. That's not peacemaking. Peacemaking is costly. Peacemaking is ugly. Peacemaking is sacrificial. But that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. We make peace with one another. We confront and rebuke one another. We show each other where we've sinned and we ask for forgiveness and repent to one another when we can. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a peaceful kingdom, not because it's automatically peaceful, but because when conflict arises, the sons of God, the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom, make peace with one another. And so you shall be called sons of God. That's the, that's the kind of the end goal. Is it, it, it demonstrates that you are a son of God, a daughter of God, because you're a peacemaker, and God is a, a peacemaker. Let's finish here, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are 
persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the final good on you, and it's probably the most jarring of them all. Blessed are the hated. Yeah. Approved are the ones that are disapproved of in this world. I don't know, for me, maybe this is the hardest of all. I love approval. I love people liking me. I love having you know, their attention and their appreciation and their you know, positive review of who I am. And so when that gets threatened, I want to hide, I want to run, I want to, you know, close up, stop speaking, do whatever I can to maintain my reputation. But that's because I'm living for the kingdom of man, I'm living for this other kingdom here. I want everyone to speak, speak well of me. But when we follow Jesus, we follow a crucified Messiah, we follow one who is hated and despised and rejected, and so we will receive the exact same treatment if we truly follow him. If we go about trying to make peace, if we go about trying to live righteously, if we go about trying to bring justice to the world, we will be hated because we will go up against the kingdom of man. And they won't like it. If you ever post anything slightly, you know, religious or righteous on Facebook, you'll experience it. You'll experience it if you try and stand up for the life of the unborn or, you know, biblical sexual ethics. You'll experience that hatred. It might be subtle, or it might be actually more outright. I feel like it's getting more outright. You're not going to get any sympathy anymore. But the upside-downness of the kingdom is this. You are blessed when that happens. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Your reward is in heaven. It's not now, it's future. Rejoice and be glad because... You're part of this great team. The prophets, they were persecuted. It shows you you're part of that team. You're part of that crew. Rejoice and be glad because you are being persecuted because of your allegiance to Jesus. And that is the greatest privilege you could ever have. If for someone to hate you because they hate Christ. And so you so resemble Jesus Christ. You so live the kingdom life. You are so in the kingdom of heaven that they hate you because you represent all that they're against. And in this upside-down kingdom, Jesus is like, attaboy, good on you. Yeah. Blessed is that person. It's remarkable. So, a lot there. You could spend a long time meditating on each one of these. And I would encourage you this week, go through each one of these blessings and think through it. Where does this line up with my life? Where doesn't it? Because this is how we truly experience a blessed life humbling ourselves before Almighty God rather than lifting ourselves up or trying to pretend as if we've got something smuggling in something like, yeah, boy, I had to be saved. But I'm also pretty good too. Now, blessed are those who are humble before Almighty God. And blessed are those who live wholly for God. There's no separation between your church life and your Christian life. The kingdom of God permeates your whole being. Even in the face of persecution and danger. But in the end, none of us can perfectly do this. None of us is going to live up to the standard that Jesus is saying here. If this was how you actually entered the kingdom of heaven, 
None of us could get in. Our pride would come against us. Our jealousy would come against us. Our comfort, our lust, our idolatry would come against us and we would never be able to enter. And that's why the gospel, that's why the message of Christianity is good news. Because Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And he is the truly blessed one who lived a life completely in this attitude of poverty of spirit. He, he did not consider you know, heaven a thing to be grasped, but made himself man and come down, came down. He mourned over the sins of the world. He was meek. That was how he was described. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful, even up to the point of death on the cross, saying, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He was pure in heart clean hands, integral life. He was a peacemaker and he was royally persecuted. Jesus is the blessed one. He's the hashtag blessed person. And by aligning yourself with Jesus, you receive all of his blessings, all of God's good on you to Jesus are then applied to you. Not because you're really great at following the, you know, the, the attitude, but because Jesus was. And when you trust him and follow him, it all comes to you. So friends, this week, look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Come from you know, repenting of your sins and look to him and you will see the truly blessed one. And you will experience comfort over your pain of sins. You will one day inherit the earth. You'll be filled with an eternal righteousness which is true joy. You'll be comforted as every tear is wiped away from your eye and you will see God face to face. You will see God himself. You will be classed as a son or daughter of the king. And you'll be rewarded for every shameful insult and rebuke you receive for standing up for King Jesus. Come ye sinners and come to Jesus. Through him, yours is the kingdom. And through him and him alone, yours is the blessed life. You can have it, but only through him. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are absolutely, incredibly grateful to you that you have revealed the secret to the good life. That we don't need to pursue all the worldly comforts. We don't need to pursue all the worldly approval. We don't need to pursue the authority that we want, the possessions that we want. We need to pursue you, and in you we have it all. God, it's, you're just so kind to us. You would orchestrate your kingdom that it's actually our weakness that gets us in in the first place. It's our inability to meet the standard, which is the standard we have to meet. And so, God, we want to confess that we are poor in spirit. And we want to thank you that ours is the kingdom through Jesus Christ. And would you help us to follow him? Would you fill us with your spirit this week so that we can live as citizens of the kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.